Hello and welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli. It is the final week of our summer break here on the show. Thank you all for hanging in there while we've taken some time off this summer. This week we are revisiting an episode on gerrymandering that aired at the beginning of this year. We talk with journalist and author David Daly about the efforts by grassroots reformers to end the practice of partisan gerrymandering following the 2010 redistricting cycle, as well as the consequences of what happens to our democracy if partisan gerrymandering continues this time around. Check the show notes for a piece that David recently wrote in The Guardian about the concept of democracy deserts that we discuss in this interview as well. We are going to talk about redistricting again on the show in a couple of weeks, but this time from a slightly different lens that I think you'll enjoy. So keep an eye out for that episode as well as our season opener where Michael, Chris and Candace will all be back on the microphone next week. But for now, here is a rebroadcast of our episode with David Daly from January of this year. From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Candace Watt-Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. And uh, this week, we are going to be talking about redistricting. And our guest is David Daly, who is the author of the book, Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. And it might seem a little odd to be talking about redistricting in the midst of everything else that is going on in our politics right now. But as I think you'll hear in the interview, there is actually a a connection between gerrymandering and some of the bigger questions about the future of our politics and what type of politicians we'll have. Yeah, even in a normal political environment, this would be what everybody would be talking about, right? (laughs) Because this is kind of the next big thing coming down the pike. So just to also reiterate the kind of chaos that we are all experiencing. I think one of the things that's going to be really important about David Daly's book is that it really helps us to orient. It orients us both towards the states, which is where a lot of the voting power comes from in rules and laws. And it also orients us to the possible that there are people who are working every day tirelessly to do something about the things that they think are wrong with our democracy and who gets the vote and who want to try to expand the franchise, sometimes up against their own representatives who are often trying to exclude more people, exclude more Americans. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I also think it helps us to see that these issues, these separations, these points of contention go pretty far down. And they're not limited to what you hear on your average cable TV talk show. So we've talked about gerrymandering on this podcast before, and I don't want to get into too much detail, but just to set a little bit of the table for why we're talking about this now. Every 10 years, we have a census. We just completed one. Actually, we haven't got the results back, but the census itself is done. It's in the Constitution that we have to do this every 10 years. And the results of that census determine which states get how many representatives. But then the other thing that happens after the census is that every state has to redraw its districts. 
both for the congressional districts and also for the state legislature, and usually Senate and Assembly. And so how they do that, the 10-year census results give them the, right now, the only opportunity to do that. So the thing about the census years is every 10 years is not just important for the census, but it also makes the elections that occur at the 2010, 2020, 2030 makes them especially important because the party that wins the state houses are the ones who are going to have the greatest say on redistricting. So in the case of the 2020 election, It was good for Republicans who weren't Trump, and it was not good for Democrats at the state level. Because the Republicans are in charge of either the legislatures or the governor, and in many cases, both. And so therefore, there's no nobody contesting the lines they draw, and they're going to draw lines, just like any politician would, that benefit their party. And so because there's no contested power, they're able to do basically what they want. And that's why Davey talks about going outside the legislative process and through referenda or through citizens initiative to try to come up with some better system than the fox literally guarding the hen house. But one thing he says that I think is absolutely right is that it is simply not possible for any state, any legislative body to do this in the dark of night or to do this without Mm -hmm. people paying attention. In 2010, it was struck, it's considered to be a very arcane, confusing, who cares, draw maps, whatever. And so Republicans took advantage of new software, new data, and really drew some very sophisticated maps. And it was only ex post facto, that people realize what had actually happened. And so this isn't different from what goes back all the way to Elbridge Jerry when the term was coined in, I think, 1805 or whatever it was. But those days are gone. People are aware of it, and they're waiting to see what happens. And so at minimum, they're not going to be able to get away with it without being called on it. There are recourses. It's not really apparent in some places, in some ways. So for example, the Shelby case out of the Supreme Court basically kind of struck down the preclearance clause, I guess you could say, of the Voting Rights Act. And so there, at least, you know, there were some places where if you wanted to make changes, you had to go through the DOJ before you made major changes and and that's gone. And so on the one hand, I do think that it's really important that people are going to be paying more attention to these redistricting and voting rule changes over the course of the next several years. But we also have to keep in mind that it's going to be important. And now I'm talking on the other side of my mouth because I'm usually like local, local, local to see what Congress does about whether they are willing to implement a new Voting Rights Act that could potentially prevent some of these really egregious forms of voter dilution. There are some interesting dynamics here between people and politicians, between states and the federal government and the courts. So let's go to the interview with Dave Daly. Dave Daly, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jenna. 
excited to talk with you about your book, Unrigged, and all the work you've been doing chronicling grassroots politics over the past couple of years. And one thing that we have coming up in 2021 that might be easy to forget about is redistricting. You have spent a lot of of your time with grassroots organizers throughout the country that were working to end the practice of gerrymandering. And at a basic level, I guess I'm wondering how they did. I think that the redistricting that happens in 2021 is going to be much more transparent and the public is going to be much more aware of how important it is. One of the things that has really happened over the last few years is that gerrymandering has become a hot topic. It's become something that everybody understands the importance of and the centrality to our politics for a decade. And when I wrote my first book on this, the publisher made me give it a vulgar name because they said, you can't possibly use (laughs) the most boring word in the world, gerrymandering, on a book on that topic. And now you can talk about gerrymandering everywhere, right? It's on John Oliver. It's on The Daily Show. It's all over the place. So mapmakers are not going to be able to get away with doing this in private and in smoke-filled rooms and in bunkers the way that they did 10 years ago. I also think that the technology behind map making, the same software that makes it possible for lawmakers to gerrymander is going to be in the hands of the people and it's going to allow us to see through what they've done. There have also been amazing citizen redistricting efforts and I chronicle the ones in Michigan and and Utah and Missouri and, and Colorado in Unrigged. In Michigan, it's an amazing story. It's Katie Fahey. She's 27 years old. A lot of your listeners may be familiar with her story. Uh, Two days after the 2016 election, she wants to take on something in our politics that might be unifying, something that might get everyone in her family filled with Trump voters, Clinton voters, Bernie Sanders voters to rally around one issue. And she picks gerrymandering in Michigan. And she goes onto Facebook and puts up a Facebook post about how she wants to take this topic on and other people who want to join her ought to reply. And they built, through that one social media post, a redistricting revolution. You had partisans drawing maps in Michigan behind closed doors in 2011. You're going to have an independent commission of citizens doing this in daylight in 2021. And I want to come back to Katie and and some of these grassroots organizers in a minute, but sticking with redistricting here, what does the process look like over the next year? And and how are the Katie Fahey's of the world and all the fair districts and these types of groups, what does this coming year look like for them as far as how they're keeping an eye on what's happening, holding people's feet to the fire, those kind of things? Absolutely. We draw these new state legislative and congressional lines every 10 years after the census. And one of the things that has slowed this process down here in early 2021 is that the census numbers have not yet been reported to the states. 
the earliest this is now likely to happen is mid to end of February. There's a lot of people that think April or May is really much more likely. Every state has its own process as soon as the census numbers arrive. And in a lot of states, they begin with hearings and with the crafting of a bill that include these new maps really very soon thereafter. I think that what you have are citizens in many of these states who have already organized themselves in North Carolina and Texas and Ohio and Michigan, that they're going to be watching and they're going to be in the middle of these public hearings and they're going to be testifying as to what a community of interest is. They're going to be keeping this issue alive in the news media and they're going to be using this software to design maps that show really what a kind of fairness is possible. And I don't think that these lawmakers are going to be able to craft maps as they did in 2011 in secret and pretend that they're the only maps possible. They're going to be seen in public. They're going to be tested by citizens. And there's going to be much more of a spotlight on redistricting than perhaps there ever has been. You write in Unrigged that in some ways the notion of democracy itself is is at stake here. Depending on the way that some of these things go, some of these places could look far less small d democratic than they have in the past. Can you talk more about what you mean by that? These district lines that are drawn are really the building blocks of our democracy. These legislative districts and congressional districts, when you draw those lines, oftentimes you have the power to select winners and losers. And because of the polarization in our politics and the geographic scattering of Democrats in cities and Republicans more efficiently spread across suburbs and rural America, the way that you craft these districts can lock a party into power for years and years, even when they win fewer votes. In so many states, the lines that were drawn in 2011 for state legislatures, they locked the party that drew them in power for 10 years. And after the 2018 election, there were 59 million Americans, almost one in five of us, that lived in a state in which one or both chambers of the state legislature were controlled by the party that won fewer votes. And that is deeply antithetical to the notion of a representative democracy. Our state legislature is supposed to be the office that is most responsive to the people. And when these lines are drawn in a way that one party controls them no matter what, it pushes our politics to the extreme because when a general election is not competitive, it means that the primary election usually held in the middle of the summer, it's low turnout, only the most extreme members of the party, left or right, tend to participate. And you get a very different kind of politics. You get different kinds of politicians, and they become insulated from the people, and then policy drifts out to extremes. So these maps are really the starting point for everything that happens in a state for a decade. 
The other thing that it's kind of going through the back of my mind now, and this is this is a, a much more cynical thought, but I wonder if to the point of having fair maps will lead to different types of candidates being elected to state legislatures. I wonder if we're kind of already too far down a different path there. If a lot of what we read about polarization and all of these things, if that's already too far gone, that even if the maps are more fair, it might not necessarily lead to a, a change in in the types of candidates that are, are running or are getting into office in, in state legislatures. The story that I think is just most powerful when it comes to showing the impact of these district lines is a story from North Carolina. And this is the story of Mark Meadows. In 2010, when Republicans take control of the state legislature in North Carolina, they decide that they want to draw a congressional map that, as the chairman of the committee says at the time, explicitly creates 10 Republican seats and three Democratic seats in a state that is probably narrowly Republican, but a pretty close and pretty competitive statewide. They do this by going to the western part of the state where there had been a swing district that had gone back and forth throughout the 2000s. They had elected a Republican in 2000, 2002, after 9-11. By 2006, as public dissatisfaction sours over the Gulf War and the economy, it elects a Democrat, a conservative Democrat named Heath Schuler, who many um, football fans will remember as a quarterback with the Washington football team. And Schuler even holds the seat in 2010, but when he sees the map that is drawn in 2011, he takes one look and retires immediately. Because what Republicans did is they crack the city of Asheville in half. They drew a line through the most liberal kind of hippie vegan city in his district. They put half of the voters into a new district and half of the voters into Patrick McHenry's district, another conservative Republican. And as a result, they created two Republican districts down there simply by how they drew that line. Mark Meadows is a sandwich shop owner, <laughs> and he runs for this seat. It's a wide open Republican primary, six, seven candidates. Meadows runs essentially as a hard right birther who you can find the video online of him saying, I'm going to send Barack Obama back to Kenya or wherever it is that he comes from. Meadows wins this primary with about 37, 38% of the vote, goes on to Washington, wins the seat because it has been drawn to elect the most extreme winner of a primary. He goes to Washington. He files the parliamentary motion that uh, knocks John Boehner a Republican out of the speaker's chair. He, he essentially forces the government shutdown of 2013. He then goes and becomes Donald Trump's chief of staff. He's the most powerful man in Washington in many ways. And he's created by redistricting. If those districts are drawn in a different way, we don't have Mark Meadows and his ilk in office. And I think what happened with the gerrymandering of this last decade is that it inflicted a Frankenstein's monster on our politics that the folks who drew these lines, I think they wanted to lock in a partisan advantage for themselves, but I don't think that they understood that what they were really doing was pushing our politics to 
such an angry, resentful place? And is there coming back from it? It's going to be very difficult, but it has to start with fixing what was broken. And what was broken is the very idea of fair elections and representation itself. Yeah, it's like a be careful what you wish for type of of scenario or something like that. So your book, Unrigged, is the story of these individuals and these groups and, and volunteers across the country that really take action and put boots to the ground on not just gerrymandering, but lots of other issues. And I'm wondering, these individual stories, I think, are great and certainly inspiring, but do you have any sense of what kind of the breadth of this are? I mean, how many... Katie Fahey's or Luke Mayville's or the other folks out there? I mean, are these people needles in haystacks or are there lots more people who are doing this work that just maybe don't quite get the spotlight that they have? In 2018, you had five states that did initiatives or constitutional amendments on redistricting. So along with Katie Fahey in Michigan, you had Utah, Ohio, Colorado, and Missouri. In 2020, you saw this pass in Virginia, and there were efforts in Oklahoma and Arkansas and Oregon and out in the Dakotas, and many of those got stymied either by COVID and the pandemic, which made it more difficult to get out and collect signatures, or by state political establishments that filed lawsuits and essentially knocked them off of the ballot. So certainly this is not easy. Luke Mayville is another amazing story in Idaho where they have, you know, it's certainly a deep red state, but Luke and a group called Reclaim Idaho were able to organize and win expansion of Medicaid there in 2018. And that happened as well in Nebraska and other states that we think of as red states. And I think that when you look at Luke, when you look at Katie, when you look at Desmond Mead and the folks in Florida who won a restoration of voting rights for the 1.4 million people in that state who had a felony conviction in their past and had served their time, but had essentially lost the franchise forever due to a law that dated back to the Jim Crow era. There has been such powerful movements that have been created in states by real individuals who have hogged off of Twitter and, you know, that turned off MSNBC and got to work knocking on doors, trying to persuade their neighbors. And these have been transpartisan. The victory in Florida, and I know it's been undone in, in many ways by a gerrymandered legislature and will be decided now in the courts. But when you look at the magnificence of what Desmond Mead and Neil Balls were able to win in Florida in 2018. This is a year in which voters elect a Republican governor, a Republican U.S. senator. It's not a blue wave year in Florida in 2018, but 64% of voters there signed on and said, yes, we think someone who has made a mistake and served his or her time ought to get their voice in civic affairs back. That's an incredibly powerful thing. It shows that these issues are not democratic issues or Republican issues, but deeply American questions of fairness and people wanting their government to work and their elections to be fair. And I think that there's a lot of hope that we can take from that. 
So what becomes of these movements, these coalitions now? I mean, in some places, the ballot measures have passed and there it seems maybe at least on its face that their work is done. Are they looking to move on to another issue or are there still other parts of things like Medicare expansion, like redistricting, like felony disenfranchisement in Florida? Are there other parts of those issues that they're focusing on? Or are they looking to move their energies elsewhere? I think you've got your finger on the most important question, which has been that all of these initiatives, while they have won and been successful, have run into opposition from uh, legislatures in these states and politicians who feel like they're insulated from the public and who have tried to block them or slow them down in the actual enactment phase. So one of the really important lessons that I think people have learned is that a victory is never complete and it's never over, not on election day, in many times, not ever. A victory has to be continually defended. And I mean, Dr. King talked about an arc of the moral universe that is long, but bends toward justice. And I think what we all have to realize is that arc doesn't bend by itself, that we've all got to have our hands on it if we want to pull it in the direction of fairness and more democracy, and that you can't simply put your hand on the arc on election day. If we want to live in a multiracial democracy that upholds the ideals that we want this country to live up to, all of us have to have our hands on that arc at all times. So all of the, or at least most of the the kind of success stories we've been talking about here have come as a result of the ballot initiative process. Do you know of any parallels, similar stories that happened through a, a more traditional legislative means? I think the victory in Virginia is one that everyone can look at and feel really good about because there is no independent initiative possibility on redistricting there. And Voters had to organize and lobby their legislators in order to win the independent commission that will go into effect in 2021. They had to convince lawmakers that this was important, that enough voters cared. They had to convince Republicans who controlled the legislature in 2019 and also the Democrats who won the legislature and controlled it in 2020 to pass the exact same amendment two years in a row so that it could then go to voters for approval. This is the first time that a state legislature has voluntarily turned over this much control over the drawing of their lines, really in the country's history. And it was only made possible because citizens organized and showed up in Richmond and proved to lawmakers that this mattered to them. Can that happen every place? Not necessarily. You all have been fighting and trying just as hard. I mean, Carol Kuno-Holmes, a fair district, a PA group, has been doing this in Harrisburg, I know, and working so effectively. And they had a wonderful bill that I believe had more co-sponsors than any legislation in the last session of the legislature there. It's not proof that success is possible, but it's certainly a roadmap that shows that sometimes it can be. Sure. 
So as we kind of bring things to a close here, Dave, what else are you watching? What other stories are on your radar as you look out to the rest of this year? I think a really important question is going to be the question of citizen voting age population and whether or not state legislatures can draw district lines that are based not on total population, which has been the longtime standard for state legislatures and is the constitutional standard for Congress and for congressional districts, or whether they can use numbers based on citizens over the age of 18. And this would have really a major effect if state legislatures made this move. You could see states like Texas, Alabama, Missouri, Georgia, for example, where this has been talked about, and it would essentially shift political power and make districts older, whiter, more conservative, and more rural. And this will, I think, has the possibility to become the real legislative battleground and legal battleground of the next decade, whether or not states have that right, whether it is a violation of one person, one vote. And it has the potential really to uh, remake and redefine the essence of representation. Yeah, geez, that is a big story. Uh, we, I feel like we could have a whole other conversation. Just <laughs> about that, but I know that you will be doing your due diligence in, in your reporting on it over the next months and years. And, and maybe we'll, we'll have you back on sometime down the road to talk about it. But in the meantime, thank you so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure. Thank you for this podcast. It's so wonderful. Thanks. That was a great interview, as always, with Jenna, and I learned a lot from Dave. He has me thinking about some important things. And one of the things that stood out to me and in connection to what we were talking about before, Chris, is about how in this next round of fights that are inevitable to come up around gerrymandering, the battlefield is going to look different in part because of cases like Shelby County, which happened in 2013, and Rucho, which happened in 2019, where the Supreme Court essentially said partisan gerrymandering is, well, basically they said, we are not going to say anything about it because that is a political matter and that is non-justiciable. Is that the word? Mm -hmm. And so, again, I don't want to get on my high horse about how the Supreme Court does not always produce democratic outcomes, but essentially that's what we have and that's where we are. So there's going to be a necessity to bring cases so that we have more democracy, not less, that more people can participate but there are going to be some barriers at various levels of government and different aspects, right? The judiciary, the federal government, the legislative branches, there's going to be challenges all over the place. Yeah, because the Supreme Court decided that this issue either, well, I mean, I don't want to get down in the weeds of the decision, but basically they gave no meaningful guidance on this issue. Mm -hmm. And so there's no final determining legal authority to say this is okay and this isn't. I find it fascinating that essentially we're burning votes, right? That you can gerrymander 
on partisan lines and essentially just tell a whole group of people that your votes don't matter. And we can predict that pretty easily about who's going to be the winner, right? So this is where people say gerrymandering allows political representatives to choose their voters instead of voters choosing their representatives. Mm -hmm. The other part, which I find just so frustrating and infuriating is that we often like to pretend that American politics is not that race and racism aren't core components of American politics and certainly the party system. So it's Mm -hmm. not only that African-Americans, Black folks tend to be Democrats and Latinos tend to be Democrats, but also that the Republican Party tends to be white. Mm -hmm. So to try to make a distinction, yeah, of course, there's a distinction between partisanship and race, but either way, gerrymandering on either serves to dilute the votes of a large proportion of citizens. And it's wrong. It's wrong on either way. And so I find it, I just don't understand. Actually, I do understand because John Roberts hates voting. So, <laughs> so send that's your email we to we Candace Watson. <laughs> well, he does. I mean, yeah, I don't disagree with you. But here is the problem I have, and I don't know what to do with it. When you're redrawing districts, there are a series of objectives, of values, of outcomes that you're looking for. And once you've done it, once you kind of tried your hand at it, you quickly come to realize that it is as much art as science. There is Mm -hmm. no obvious, straightforward, oh, well, this is clearly what should happen, right, in terms of drawing lines. Because you're balancing things like constituency groups and geography and Mm -hmm. population sizes and fairness, right? And Mm -hmm. to get all these things to go together is difficult, even for the most fair-minded of us. Maybe I'm saying the same thing, but in a different way, Chris, is that we do live in a highly segregated country. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we're seeing, the reasons why we're seeing Donald Duck slapping Goofy or whatever, or we're seeing these crazy districts is because the effort is to either pack districts where you're just putting a whole bunch of people who are just alike in a district and then you're wasting their votes because then they're going to be surrounded by people who are totally different. And when their representative gets to the legislator, they are not going to have any place to have coalition or you're slicing them, you're cracking Mm -hmm. them so that, yeah, you know that we tend to have uh, racially segregated neighborhoods and then you crack them so that they have no power at all. Mm-hmm. So there is a fine balance. And the fact of the matter is, is that if people can use all of the big data and census data and every magazine that you've ever read and all of the websites to figure out what you do to create districts that are completely unfair, then that means that you can use that same information to create good, fair, competitive districts. I think that we have to keep our mind that there is a possibility of reform. There's a possibility of doing good. And and it has happened, right? And that's what Dave's book shows, too. Mm -hmm. He provides plenty of models where people are just using technology and social media for good, that they're getting their boots on the ground to bring people together. But my argument would be, and this is actually something that Dave says in his book, is that he thinks that gerrymandering is 
one aspect of this broader trend in American society where red states are becoming less democratic and blue states are becoming more democratic. And that's obviously democratic with a small d. And you see this manifested in a number of ways. I mean, every time I hear somebody say, we're a republic, not a democracy, I want to hit something. But it is now kind of a knee-jerk response. I mean, there's just this denigration of the idea and the ideal of democracy among many people on the right side of American politics. And then on the other side, you see a party, a Democratic Party, that sees its future mm-hmm. in expanding the electorate, mm-hmm. bringing more people in, giving more power to people of color. So their inclination is to make things easier, more access, et cetera. It's too easy to use that brush, but I am hard-pressed to see how it's wrong, how it's incorrect. Yeah, I mean, I'm from North Carolina. That's a place where the demographics are changing and Republicans in that place have really entrenched power. I can't remember after which election that they made these efforts to reduce the power of the governor, which was a Democrat. Wisconsin, where I'm from, did the same thing. Okay. So, Chris, I think, you know what? I want to leave you on the dark side. And (laughs) I think that these issues are really tough. They're really hard. And the moment that we're living in now makes it seem like things are going to get worse. And maybe they will. But I think that what Dave's book shows us and gives models for is that there are different ways that we can do this and that there are citizens that are really pushing for and being successful in some cases for producing and requiring and forcing demanding change. And they're getting that. No, I think that's absolutely correct. And I also think that there are anti or at least significantly less democratic elements of the American political system. We've talked about them. Mm -hmm. The Electoral College and Senate, the two senators from each state, it makes a wildly undemocratic representation of the popular will. But there is something, there are mechanisms by which you can change the way that district lines are drawn in your state. And there are ways to make them more fair. And so if you're looking for a lever an issue around which to focus your energy, Dave's book does a really good job of showing you why this is the issue. And really, given the the census, now is the time. So anyway, I mean, I think that's a pretty good note to end on. Thanks to Dave Daly and Jenna for a really good interview. And thanks, Candace, for yet another really interesting conversation. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Candace Watts-Smith. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mark Stitzer, Jen Bortz, and Chris Kugler. And additional support comes from WPSU's Andy Grant, Emily Reddy, Chris Allen, and Craig Johnson. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.